This message is brought to you by this excellent church. We excel at reshaping people's values and reconciling men to God. You're about to hear peace and preach. Be blessed. Listen, consider yourself favored. Consider yourself blessed. Because you might not have all the time in the world to investigate all the claims of the ways to God. You might not have all the time in the world to investigate all the claims of the ways to God. But I can tell you today, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. And you have been blessed to have believed him. You are blessed to have put your faith in him. You, have, you are blessed to have put your faith in him. And that is why you, are, you have his righteousness. That's why you have fellowship with him. That's why you are one with him. That's why you are a child of God. Don't let anything lie to you. Don't let anything deceive you. Don't let anybody lie to you. You are the child of God. Father, we thank you this evening for revelation knowledge. Thank you, Lord, because you're going to strengthen our, our faith. Thank you, Lord, because you're going to fill us with understanding. Thank you, Lord, because your name will be glorified in our lives. In the name of Jesus. Father, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Amen. All right, all right, all right. So let's get into it. This shouldn't take long. The title for today's service, the teaching for today, what's the title? How what? Good, how we got the Bible. Hallelujah. So basically, it's going to be a teaching. I believe that when, I, when we started, we talked about scriptural inerrancy and all that, and I did a kind of summary of how the Bible came to be, but today we're going to go a little bit more in-depth as to how we got the Bible, how the Bible is what it is. Praise God. So um, if you want to understand why we also believe that the Bible or the scriptures are the word of God and how we know that they're inspired and how we know they're inerrant, you would have to go and get that series from our SoundCloud, is it on YouTube? It's on YouTube too, so you can get the series there and you can um, learn uh, more. But really, how the Bible came to be, that's what we're going to focus on today. So it's more like a teaching in history, but there are a lot of instructive things that will help us to know. As we all know, the Christian Bible is divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? We all know that the Bible is divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. Is anybody that doesn't know? So there's a very, something often I've seen in a few places that some ignorant people have said, and they will say part of the reason why the Bible is not credible is because the Christians have different Bibles. Catholics have a Bible, um, Protestants have a Bible, Orthodox, um, Eastern Orthodox guys have a Bible and all that. So, you know, those kind of funny things. Well, that's not really true. And that's a very silly statement. So we're going to talk, talk about all that very briefly. We're going to look at the reason how the Bible came to be. Um, how those 66 books of the um, Protestant Bible came to be, and how the otherwise the other numbers of the other books came to be for the other um, what they call it for the other denominations. Hallelujah! And spoiler alert: it's very boring. It's not interesting. It's not one of those history lessons where you hear a lot of this happened and then that happened and then this this happened and the story is interesting. History is actually very boring. Like most um, historical events actually are, right? Especially ones that have a lot of controversy and everything. They are actually very boring. So you hear a lot of popular level nonsense like um, the Council of Nicaea were the one that decided which kind of scriptures that, which Bible, which books Christian will use and all those kinds of nonsense things. You know, <clears throat> and I would say some guys just decided on what that was far from the truth, right? So let me, give us, let me start from the Old Testament and New Testament so that we can understand how it came about to be. So how do we have the Old Testament? So um, we have to go back to the story of the Jews for us to have a good example of how, of how that came to be. So there are, there are the Pentateuch, the Law, and the Prophets. You will notice something in the New Testament when Jesus and the apostles are talking. You notice that they usually say the law and the prophets. Have you noticed that? And that's because at that first century, second century BC, there were no, even the Jews did not have 
a set of books that they called these are our books. The idea that these are our accepted books is a development that came many centuries later, I think around the 11th century, when a lot of when a lot of rabbis, the sages of Jewish rabbis, decided that they decided on these are the books that they call the Hebrew Bible. Before then, there were a lot of Jewish books and Jewish writings that we call the Law and the Prophets. That just called the Law and the Prophets. It was not called. It was not a list. It was not listed in quotes, but it was generally accepted by all the Jews that these are the books that we read. Do you understand that? So in the first century, they would call it the Law and the Prophets, and so. Those books contain the law and the prophet. That means they contain the first five books, which are the Pentateuch, and they contain all the books of the prophets. That's the, the major and the minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Quran, so on and so forth. Right? And then there were other books that came up. Then there were some other books called the apocryphal books. Many of these books are um, pseudographical. How, how do they call them? Some of them, the writers are not really known, right? Um, and those books were written sometime in the sec second century BC. That means like 200, 300 years before Jesus was born. Those books were, were written in the post-exilic age. That's when the Jews came back to Jerusalem and were rebuilding the Jewish civilization. And then there was a story of the Maccabean revolt. No, after then, you know, Alexander the Great destroyed the Medo-Persian Empire. Then the Greeks, <clears throat> the Greeks ruled for a very short time. And for a very short time, when Alexander the Great's empire split into many parts, the Seleucid Empire now came after that. Do you understand that? So under the, under the time of the Seleucid Empire, something very interesting happened. Because of the conquest that Alexander the Great did, most of Asia Minor, most of the Mediterranean, and most of Western Europe, or the lower part of the Mediterranean, began to speak Greek because of the conquest, colonization. They began to speak Greek. And because of that, many Greeks, many Hebrews who were living in Egypt, like Alexandria, who were living in the, in the Middle East at that time, could not speak Hebrew anymore. They were all now speaking Greek. So um, because of that, there they now arose a need to transfer that Greek, um, the Hebrew Bible to Greek so that a lot of, so that many Jews can be able to read it. So under Ptolemy II, who was a, who was in, who was a ruler in Egypt, he was one of the, uh, part of the Seleucid Empire. Is it Seleucid? Uh, yeah, I think so. Ptolemy II, Shah, he was king in um, Egypt, right? He is the one that now commissioned 70 rabbis to, to, to translate this, the, the Old Testament scriptures from the Hebrew to the Greek. So when it was transferred, um, translated into the Greek, that translation to the Greek is what we now call the Septuagint, right? Septuagint, and that was Septuagint refers to 70, referring to the number of rabbis that came to translate it. Do you understand? So that Septuagint, by, the Septuagint contained a lot of books. It contained the uh, 39 books that we have as, um, what do you call it, as Protestants. It also contains some other books like um, additional seven books, First, Second, First and Second Maccabees, um, we know those books, Judith, Tobith, and all those books, right? Those additional seven books. Then it has some additions to the book of Daniel. Then it has some additions to the book of Esther. Then it has Psalm 151. It has a book called The Prayer of Massas. And in fact, there's Third and Fourth Maccabees. You understand that? Now, all these books began, they were now referred to as the apocryphal books. Many of these books were not, um, were books that arose later on, around the second century BC, that's before Jesus died. And before Jesus came, 200, 200 BC, before Jesus came. That's when those books arose. But Jews were reading them. So even the time of Jesus, all those people were reading them, you know, together and all that. So Jews were reading them at the same time and everything. However, later on, <clears throat> Later on, the Jews um, decided that they were going to go with um, the number of books that were in the... Or, now, these apocryphal books were written in Greek. The apocryphal books were written in the Greek. The original Hebrew Bible was written in the Hebrew, translated to the Greek. But the apocryphal books were written in the Greek because they rose during the time of the Greek, when the Greek was lingua franca in many of the Middle, Middle Eastern countries. Do you understand that? So the, the, the Jews later on decided, I think around the 11th century, that they were going to go with a certain group of books, which we call the Hebrew Bible. So those groups, books of, that were called the Hebrew Bible are what you would find in a, commonly in the Protestant Old Testament books. The books that we have from Genesis to Malachi is what the Jews read as their Bible. Do you understand? They call it the Tanakh. 
which is the Torah, the, the Navin, and the Ketuvim. That is the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's the meaning. So the short form is the Tanakh. Do you understand that? So that's what the Hebrews use, and that's what we use as the Old Testament, our Old Testament book scriptures. So that is the reason why. So if you go to any Jewish synagogue today, their Old Testament is our Protestant. If you read an average English Protestant book, an average English Protestant Old Testament, our Genesis to Malachi is the way it is in their own Jewish synagogues too. Why is it that that of the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church has their apocryphal books? And um, so, for example, the, 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 the Catholic Church has some apocryphal books in addition to our Old Testament or the Hebrew Old Testament. And what are those books? These seven additional books, they have some additions to Daniel, they have some additions to Esther. Do you understand that? The Orthodox Church, which is the Eastern Orthodox Church, remember that the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church were all part of that massive Roman Empire that when it split into the Eastern and Western Empires, under Charlemagne. Charlemagne took the Western Empire because he conquered most of Western Europe. And then the Eastern Empire was under the Byzantine Empire, where the head of the church was in Constantinople, right? So, the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church split sometime during 1050 for a lot of many reasons. So, they shall went their own ways. So, that's why we have the Orthodox Eastern Church. You know what the Eastern Orthodox Church look like, right? And then we have the Catholic Church in Western Europe. Now, so that Orthodox Catholic Church has even more, some more books in addition to what the Catholics have, which is Psalm 151, the prayer of Masas, and third and fourth Maccabees. Are we together? So why the differences? Why are there differences between that which the um, Catholic Church has, the Orthodox Church has, and Protestants that we have? Now, this is something very, very interesting. So you guys should pay attention here. Okay, this one is a little bit interesting. So the Catholic Church decided in the Council of Trent that they were going to go with the Septuagint. That means the translation of the Old Testament to the Greek. That translation, which had all those books, they accepted it as what their, old, what their own Old Testament would be. Do you understand that? Um, the Eastern Orthodox Church accepted those additional two books to their own um, Old Testament. Why did the Protestants not go with them? So when the Protestants came on board, Martin Luther had some issues with the book of Second Maccabees in particular. And that's because of the issue of the doctrine of purgatory, which Martin Luther did not subscribe to. So, and this is even the funny thing that many people don't know. Protestants did not actually delete the apocryphal books. They didn't. They didn't. So when the Protestants came, first of all, their Old Testament, they translated the original Hebrew to English or to German or English or whatever. And so that's why they have, and that's why our own Old Testament is the original Hebrew. Meanwhile, that of the Catholics is the Greek converted to English. Do you understand that? So there's the original Hebrew translated to the Septuagint, to 200 BC, which the Catholics use and translated to their different languages. When the Protestants came, they didn't translate the Septuagint. They went to the original Hebrew and translated directly from the original Hebrew. Do you understand? And so they still were. So, now, this is interesting that many people don't know. The apographical books, Martin Luther did not delete them. All he did was that he took them and he didn't say they were bad books. That's another thing that people don't know. He didn't say they were bad books. He actually retained them. In fact, the Reformed guys throughout the Reformation until recently, the Anglicans, they all have those apocryphal books in their book. All that Mathilda did was that instead of putting it in the middle of the books, other books, like putting them in the middle of Esther, Daniel, and all that, what he did was that he put them like an intertestamental book. So in his own book, if you check Mathilda's Bible and, and then, after Malachi, that's when he now puts those seven books plus in the middle before the new testament starts so the reformed guys were actually all reading their apocryphal books if i it wasn't until 1850 very interesting story this one this is the only interesting part it wasn't until 1850 when the british and um, when the british bible society decided that they wanted to print books en masse for english reading people that they said these books that are in the middle of these two books that we don't even usually read it's too expensive to be adding to the paper. So let's just quickly remove it and all that. So they just removed it because people were not really reading it anyway. And we're printing, read, and they now printed the Old Testament of the Hebrew Old Testament and New Testament. And that's how most of the English books, that's why most of the English Bibles have, English Protestant Bibles have just the Old Testament, Hebrew Old Testament and the New Testament. Do you understand that? And so that's why if you go and check the Anglican book, if you go and check the Anglican Bible, right? You will see the apocryphal books there. Just that they are in between 
the New, New Testament and the Old Testament. If you read all the Reformed people's books, it's the same thing. So really, it's just like um, Gideon's Bible, where they print only New Testament for, the reason, for practical reasons. That's the reason why many of our own Bibles don't have those books. It's for practical reasons. It's not as if the, Bibles, the Catholic people's Bibles are different and all that. Do you understand that? So, why are there differences in the number of Old Testament books that are accepted as part of the canon and everything? And this is something very, very interesting. So, you see those understanding that there were certain books that were the original Hebrew. And these apocryphal books were also being read by the apostles. And the early church fathers, some of them quoted from some of these books, right? The early church fathers, many of them quoted from some of these books. Paul quoted from some of these books, actually. Right? Paul actually quoted from some of these books. Because of that, it has always been part of church tradition to read those books. But even among the church fathers, many of them saw those books. There were different op opinions. Some of them saw those books as good books that are valuable for learning and edification that you can learn from them. But they didn't see them as what we should call scripture. Do you understand? So they saw them as good for education that if you read them, you will learn a lot of things from them, but they didn't see them as something that we should, be, we should consider scripture. And the truth is that those books don't actually postulate any doctrinal issue. The only doctrinal issue that they actually postulate is the issue of purgatory. And that's only in Second Maccabees. And that's the one that Matuta had an issue with. All the others are just basically, you know, post-exilic histories kind of stuff. Do you understand? So, from the Old Testament, you see them. For example, someone like Jerome. One of the church fathers, Jerome, he didn't like the book. Um, Athanasius, St. Athanasius says we should call them ecclesiastical books, but not really call them the Bible. So there always is difference of opinions and all that. But the Catholic Church decided, I think the Council of Trends, to just say, okay, let's just call them part of the Bible. Um, we'll call some of them the deuterocanonical. That means that we just call them part of what the Bible is. And the Orthodox Church decided that those other prayer of masses and third and fourth Maccabees are also good. What did Martin Luther say? What did the Reformed Fathers of the Protestant Reformation say? They didn't even act, they didn't condemn those books either. What Martin Luther actually said is that the book is, these books are useful for learning and all that. And that's why he preserved it in the Bible. If you go to a Reformed person's Bible, they use it. Early um, Reformed guys like um, the Presbyterians, I think um, even Wesleyans, they quote some of those books in some of their liturgy. I believe the Presbyterians quote one of those books in their wedding liturgy. Um, I think um, um, the Methodists also quote one of those books in their liturgies. So they actually quote them. So if you go and read, we go and check Reformed people's Bibles, you will see their apocryphal books there. Do you understand that? So the reason why you know we, especially in Africa, we English-speaking Protestants, post-1850 Protestants, don't have those books in our in our Bible is because of for practical reasons that now became cultural. And this is the interesting things. This is the interesting thing. The new interpretations, the new, the current paradigm of the new interpretations is that many of these councils, many of these Bible societies are returning to, because the, the issue of the cost of Bible is no more really an issue anymore. So many of them are actually returning to putting the apocrypha books back in the original position where Martin Luther kept it. So if you read the new RSV, latest editions and all that, you will see they put the apocrypha books back in those old positions. So basically that's how the Old Testament came to be. And it's very simple, straightforward, it's very boring. It's not interesting. Do you understand that? So um, those books themselves, each of them individually, how did they come to be? Over a long period of time, a long span of time, different writers at different points in times wrote different things that you know the Jewish body began to accept and by reason of the fact that the Jewish body accepted, the church also accepted it because Christianity is actually Judaism 2.0, to be honest. It's not really... Do you understand? It's basically Judaism 2.0. It's so interesting that in actually the first and second century, Christians and Jews were so together that it was the early church fathers that issues began to come up, that began to cause fight, that tried to make them um, differentiate themselves. At the time, even the synagogues, they were meeting the synagogues with Jews. Do you understand? If you read the book of Acts, you understand that Christians were also meeting the, in the synagogues with Jews. You know, they believed in the same Yahweh. Both of them will call Yahweh together. It's only when you get to that Jesus matter that you now see fights. Both of them were going to um, uh, Sunday school, that's synagogue on Sundays and all those kinds of things. So it was during the second century that Judaism and Christianity began to really differentiate and begin to really separate themselves, basically. So that's the reason why 
for the, the Old Testament is Christian Bible. It's just the same thing. You know, we just moved on it and all that. So that's why Martin Luther actually went with the Hebrew Bible. Of course, that push and pull sentiment was part of the part of what informed Martin Luther's um, decision. I think it was Erasmus. Was it Erasmus? Was it Erasmus that translated? I think it was Erasmus. They shall translate it from the original Hebrew instead of the Septuagint, instead of the Greek translation. They went to the original Hebrew to translate it. Now, this is a very interesting, interesting thing, you know, because, it's, because no two translations are alike. When you translate from the original Hebrew, you see some slight, slight differences in the words used that when you translate from the original Septuagint. That's why if you have a study Bible, they will tell you the Hebrew, you are studying the Old Testament with any NIV or anything, they will tell you the Septuagint calls it this. And um, the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew calls it this. It's not as if there are much differences as such, but you know the way it is. So it's just minor, uh, minor differences in the translations and all that. So you know that's what it came to. That's what it came to be. That's how the Old Testament came to be. Any questions? Does anybody have any questions about the Old Testament? Does anybody have any questions? You guys sure? Yes, yes, exactly. It's the Protestants that separated it and put it in between. And the Catholic Bible is part of it. Mm. Hmm? So what was it about those books that they made them separate? When they say that it's more for learning and not doctrinal? Yes. Is Psalms, for example, doctrinal? Yes, Psalms is part of our own Bible. Psalms is part of everybody's Bible. Psalms is considered doctrinal. Psalms is the most quoted book of the New Testament. Jesus and the apostles quoted it more than any other book. So all those books are heavily the it's part of the it's part of the law and the prophets. It's part of the tradition of the law and the prophets that Jesus and the apostles stood on to give Christianity its credibility. But all those other ones were not part of the things that Jesus them stood on as such. Those ones are books that we don't even know who wrote them. Some of them are just history books talking about how good some people were. Do you understand that kind of thing? So they don't really are not really they don't really they're not really the law and the prophets that Jesus and the apostles stood on to talk about what God has been doing with the Jews from the beginning of um, since Abraham's time. So that's the reason why those books just came around the 200 BC. They were just written during the time when the Israelites were having their post-exilic travails and all those kinds of things. But those books are actually good. I've read, I've read them. They are good. They're interesting stories. They'll give you stories of men with good character who did interesting things. There's a little bit of um, interesting weird stuff in the additions to Daniel about Daniel doing some things with one idol called Bell and funny weird stories like that. But but um, they are not really of significance in doctrine. They are not. Why do we, why is there a lot of ministers these days, at least I know Nigerian ministers, they like saying, oh, the meaning of something in Greek. They don't really say Hebrew. They don't really say the Hebrew words. They say That's for the... No, in the, in the, so it, yeah, it depends on how they are speaking. So the first thing you should know is that people that just quote and say um, the original word in the Greek, 90% of the time people don't actually know what they are saying because they are actually just using the word wrongly, to be honest. I've heard it a lot. People say the original word in the Greek means this, and then they will now use the literalization of that word to say something that does not follow the context of that, of that verse. So because someone says this is the original word in the Greek, it does not matter. However, so just like I said, they can say the original word in the Greek, referring to the Septuagint. But the Septuagint itself is not the first one. It's the Hebrew Bible. If you are quoting from the normal English Protestant Bible, what you will see is the original word in the Hebrew. Most likely that's what you will see. Because you are quoting, it was from the Hebrew they translated to English. But if you are speaking from a Catholic Bible, what you will say is the original word in the Greek. Because they translated from the Greek. It is the New Testament that was written in Greek. Yes, the, the, the people that don't, they don't know that. They don't know. Many people don't know, yeah. I, I don't even know. Uh, most people that say that from the original, most of the time are quoting from the New Testament. Yeah, that's another part, right? So most times when they are quoting, people are quoting from New Testament, because New Testament is written in all Greek. So when people say um, the original Greek and all that, you know, they are talking about the New Testament too, and all that, so, yeah. So, I don't know, is that clear? You can keep booting on your questions, Sha. I'm sure the other questions will come as we go on. So, for the New Testament canon, why do we have them? 
So all the New Testament, all of us, all Christians, we all have the same New Testament, right? So how did the New Testament Bible come to be? Uh, the New Testament are apocrypha. Why are they not in the Bible, so to speak, right? So first things first is that um, one of the things that began to happen was that so in the first century, a lot of the apostles and their colleagues wrote books for the churches, wrote books for different intentions, and those books were disseminated and copied, and all the churches around the Mediterranean and the Middle East were all reading those books. So those books were all available. There were some other books. Clement wrote a book, Barnabas wrote a book, the Book of Shepherd, the Didache, and now I'm coming to that, <clears throat> the Didache and all that. So there are a lot of other books, New Testament books, in the first century that spread around and Christians were all reading them. Do you understand that? So, and um, how did the culture of considering some epistles and elevating them to the level of scripture? You know, we can all agree that the Old Testament books are scripture, right? Because everybody knows that, okay, the apostles call them scripture. So, we take the Old Testament, the law and the prophets and the writings and say, okay, this is scripture, right? But how did the writing of the apostles become scripture? And then how did it now become so organized to now be called the New Testament part of our canon? Do you understand? First thing first, the apostles themselves were the first to begin to tell us that the letters that they were writing and the gospels they were writing should be considered scriptures. We have at, two, at least two instances where the two foremost leaders of the Bible quoted their colleagues and called their work scripture. Do you understand? The first example is Apostle Paul or the writer of Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy. Um, Latest scholarship believes that Apostle Paul wrote 1 Timothy and that someone wrote it on his behalf. Do you understand? So there's this culture. Should I go into all this? In the olden days, there's this culture of this, there's a scribal culture which can become very sophisticated even to the point where a person can actually write a, a letter on behalf of another person, even though the person was not there, but writing it knowing the way that person thinks and with the full confidence that that person knows that what, that what, that what I'm writing, he will support it. Do you understand that? Our cultures are very different. The scribal culture is a man is speaking, a scribe is writing on his behalf and sending the letter. But that culture actually became very sophisticated to the point where if I have pastored you very well, and uh, maybe I'm not feeling fine, I'm not around. You can write a letter in my name and say I wrote the letter, knowing that I will support, I will support you. I can even tell you write a letter for me. Do you understand that kind of thing? So it's getting that here. So a lot of people tell you that First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, Hebrews are probably someone wrote for for Paul, that kind of thing. So that's where latest scholarship is right now, but it's still the same thing, right? So. For example, we know that first Timothy, in First Timothy, Apostle Paul called Luke's gospel scripture. Right? Let's let's read the First Timothy chapter five. If you have your Bible, First Timothy chapter five. This is a very interesting part, and some people, these textual critics, people are very serious. Look at what it says. First Timothy chapter five, verse eighteen. It says, "For Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain." That's from the Law and the Prophets. He's quoting the law and the prophet. He now says, and the worker deserves his rich wages. That's Luke's gospel. That's not anywhere in the Old Testament. The worker deserves it. It's just Jesus that said it. And Luke wrote it down. That statement, the worker deserves his wages, is from Luke. Apostle Paul was quoting Luke and calling him what he wrote scripture. Jesus said it when he was on the earth. Luke wrote it down from the mouth of eyewitnesses and Apostle Paul called it scripture. Do you understand that? So that's what lets you know that from when they were alive, when they were writing letters, those letters were going to the Christian churches and the churches were already accepting them as scripture with the Old Testament books. There's another place, Apostle Peter, in um, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Apostle Peter calls Paul's letters scripture. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. He says, you're talking about Paul, he now says, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Do you see that? 
So he says Paul's letters are being distorted like other scriptures. So Peter considered Paul's letters scripture. So from their time, all those books, the epistles, all those books, the letter that wrote, everybody's books were considered scripture by the apostles. So that's why from the first century, and that's why it's very, very ridiculous people say eh, useless things like eh, eh, Christian Bible was, was rubbish. Do you understand? All those scriptures, all these books were considered scriptures from day one while they were alive. And that's one of the beautiful things about the scripture is that everybody's gospel that was written was written while those that saw Jesus were alive. And they all read it. So the people that went to Mount, uh, what's the place where Jesus ascended? With Jesus. All of them that followed him, the convoy, long convoy, that saw Jesus. All of them, they read Luke's gospel. They read, Mark's, they read Matthew's gospel. They all read it. So it's not as if, and uh, you will never hear any place where they said um, one of those gospels were wrong. Do you understand that? So it's not like as if, and that's when people say things like uh, the Christian Bible has changed. You are talking rubbish. Like you are talking around nonsense. The people that wrote the book and their colleagues all read the book and they were all using it to pray in their church and they were all reading it and studying it together from the one. Do you understand that? So that's how we know, for example, that Mark wrote it, Mark wrote gospel, Mark's gospel was Peter's oral tradition because Mark wrote it at Peter's feet. Do you understand? That's how we know that. Praise God. So from day one, the apostles already told us that, see, you can trust our letters. We can trust what we are writing to you as inspired and as part of scripture. So the church, early church, had begun to accept them as scripture. But something had begun to happen that over time, all those books were together with a lot of other books. Like I told you, First and Second Clements, the book of Letter of Barnabas, um, the book of Shepherd, the Didache, um, some other ones. I can't remember now. So some other ones that were all parts and circulating at the time. right? So all those books were um, also circulating in the body. And so something began to happen. As the church began to be, 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 became less and less horizontal and more vertical in terms of structure, there needed to be organization. And so the things that we just used to do where in our churches were just reading all the books and all that, and they'll be causing serious arguments like the second century, immediately after the apostles died, from second century, all kinds of disputes are coming up. Um, then the, this one dispute came up, that one, everybody started arguing. By third century, Gnosticism came up and all that. So the church needed to start organizing all this stuff. So the question of which books are we compiling and saying this is our Bible began to arise. Right? And so there was a develop, development over time. Okay, so I missed something. So to let you know, even after the apostles endorsed the scriptures, the church fathers, their sons, like Polycarp, Polycarp was apostles, John's spiritual son. Gone, gone, gone. Polycarp was apostles, John's spiritual son. Polycarp, for example, he quoted the book of Ephesians and he called it sacred scriptures. So that's to let you know that he said, we have an unbroken tradition since Jesus. Unbroken, consistent. Right? Um, Justin, 150. Polycarp was 125 AD. He wrote it in his book in 125 AD. Justin, 150 AD. So you can understand. One you're talking about apostles died, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s AD. Their sons were alive 10, 20 years after them writing books and all that. So you can imagine. Justin, for example, quotes uh, um, the four gospels. It's like 16 times in his books. And he calls them the scriptures also. And so those are the four gospels that they quoted that we are using today. Um, Irenaeus also confirmed, also quoted from the four, the four gospels. Now, there were some other gospels also. Book of Thomas, which also arose very early. And its authorship was in dispute. Then there were some other gospels called the Gnostic gospels that came in the third century, 200 years after. Those ones were Babalawo writings. So when you had the Gospel of Mary, Gospel of uh, Judas Iscariot, Gospel of all those rubbish things. So there was a move called the Gnostic, um, Gnostic, um, Gnosticism. And maybe that's what we should talk about next. Early church heresies that caused problems in the church at the time and how they were dealt with. That's what we'll do next. We'll do that one next. It's very, very, that one is interesting history. And you'll see how all the fights we've been fighting today, they've been fighting it since day one. So the Gnostic Gospels are a bunch of people that believe that um, everything that we see in life is actually not real kind of thing. And what just matters, let me not go into all that. Anyway, so this guy began to write some Gospels. And they will say it's the Gospel of Mary and all that. So the church just knew that this one is rubbish. We never added them. Those are the rubbish books that Dan Brown will come and be writing in his film and say there was a book of Mary called Kinnikon that said Jesus had a wife. Nonsense! Books that were written 200, 300 years after. By some heretics. That's what Dan Brown will now be quoting in his film. And foolish people 
ugodly be following and be saying, eh, why did you guys leave out some books? Can you call this rubbish? Rubbish. Anyway, so let me continue. Where was I? So the early church fathers affirmed those books. Right? So the church began to think about how which books are we going to call our canon and everything. Let us organize it and all that. So so basically, they had two they had two things that were the issue. The content of the books and the authorship of the books. And so that's where the criteria that they used to decide those books, that's where it came from. So they came so they used tradition for four criteria which were focused on the authorship and the content. So they wanted the, one of the things they were focused about was that who wrote the book? If the book is not an, written by an apostle or is not written by a colleague of the apostle, whereby the apostles were with the person, they read it and they endorsed it, we will not accept it. Except the other criteria that the book passes are overwhelming. You understand what I mean now? So if the book is not written by the apostles or by their colleagues, that someone that they knew, for example, Luke was their colleague, Paul was quoting Luke, that kind of thing. So it was not written. Mark was not an apostle, but it was a colleague of the apostles. So if the book was not written by an apostle or their colleagues, they will not accept it. Except the, the book passes the other criteria in an overwhelming way. What are the other criteria? Number one, orthodoxy. That means that does the book preach what Christianity preach? Does, does the book say what the apostles have been teaching us since day one? Is it coherent with what the apostles taught? This is very, very interesting because, for example, in the Council of Nicaea, when they were arguing about Arianism, one of the things that Athanasius used to tackle um, Arius was that they were asking him, this thing you are saying, that Jesus is a created creature, which of the fathers said it? <laughs> you understand that kind of thing? You quoted the father. say, okay, see, my own father, spiritual father, is the spiritual father, son of the spiritual father. You drop spiritual father lineage. You see, this, this is what he said. You, this thing you are saying, which of the fathers said it? The guy could not answer. So those, it was very, very important that what is in the book must be what the fathers said. Do you understand? Orthodoxy. Number two, was it relevant? So, one of the things that also guided the, the Christians in picking their book were books that were relevant to their age. So, when issues come up, certain kind of books will have contents that were orthodox, but also address their issues. So, when those books address their issue, they will want to, you understand, add it to the canon and all that. And number three was widespread. How much the general church, you know, accepted it. Everybody accepted it and all that. So, if you see a book that everybody accepted, all the Christians, everybody from Greece and Italy and Spain down to Jerusalem and Egypt, all accepted, you know that, okay, this is a book that we all have. If you see a book that's only one of so people that have you, like, which one is this book that only you people have that you're talking about? We don't know that one or that kind of thing. So, actually, and this is one thing that people don't appreciate, is that the early Christians were very OCD about the books they picked. Because they you know, Apostle John said something. He said, these books that were written, if you add one word or remove one word, thunder will fire you. <laughs> so, the early Christians were very particular about the books that they read and the books that they elevated to scripture. Because once you call a book scripture, you are saying it is the word of God. You are saying God said it. If there is any problem with that book, it means you are saying God said rubbish. <laughs> God will help me to explain this thing well. Many people think that the early Christians were stupid people that did not know what they were doing, that they were just very religious people. And then you see atheists today come up and say things like, hey, there's this discrepancy, there's this other discrepancy, and they don't know that. The early church fathers, all these books, they read it and crammed it. There was no line in the book. that was, You cannot say the book of Mark has this discrepancy. It said Mary went to the tomb first before Peter came. But Luke said um, it was when they were coming back that they said Mary. So that means that they are lying. The early church fathers knew it. And they all reconciled all those small, small, those discrepancies that they are using to sit down on foolish things. They are using to sit down to say the Bible is not correct. The early church fathers knew all those things. They all wrote about it. Go and read their books. They all read it. They all knew it. They all understood those things. So when they were elevating a book to a level it is with the sense, with the utmost sense of reverence that they were picking these books. With a full knowledge and an understanding of the scriptures that even we today don't even have. Let me not say that. With an, a kind of appreciation that we may not have today. They had that appreciation. Do you understand that? So when you're picking a book, this were the criteria they were using. For example, the writer of Hebrews, from day one, Origin had already said, we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. 
but the contents. <laughs> the contents. The orthodoxy of Hebrews was too strong that they could not say, ah, no, because we don't know the owner. You mentioned Timothy. You mentioned everybody. You mentioned the colleagues of the apostle. Well, we may not know who you are, but this thing you wrote is the word of God. We must add it. <laughs> it might be a woman. Who knows? But it's most likely Paul. It's still most likely Paul. All the men of the church fathers actually believed it was Paul. Because they were so sure. Many of them believed it was Paul. Or someone that wrote it on his behalf. Do you understand? So, that kind of thing. So, right. Are we together? So, what happened was that Eusebius, the foremost church historian, it's in um, 320 to 330. Um... The first time that we begin to see a Christian list of New Testament was Eusebius, 320 to 330. And he affirmed 22 books. He affirmed 22 books. And those 22 books, um, and he denied four. So the 22 books that he, he affirmed were the four Gospels, the book of Acts, 10 of Paul's letters, the three pastoral letters, the book of Hebrews, 1 John, 1 Peter, and the book of Revelation. Eusebius was not okay with the book of James, Jude, Second Peter, second and third John, and the reason was authorship. They were not absolutely sure that, they, that the apostles wrote those books with their own hands, and so because of that, imagine how the book of how powerful the book of James is with the confidence that they have. Just because they were not too sure if James wrote it with his own hand or not, they were. Eusebius was worried. Do you understand? Um, Cyril of Jerusalem in 350, 20 years after, affirmed all those books, right? And all those books or that of um, all those books, the ones that Eusebius affirmed, and Book of James, Jude, Second Peter, Second John, and Third John, right? Then he was considering the book of the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas is the only other gospel that was early. All the other ones are Gnostic gospels that came up in the third century. Book of Gospel of Thomas is the only other one that was early with the other gospels. But the Gospel of Thomas has problems with authorship. Nobody knows who the author is. And even the content was, and even the content is, uh, even the content you get as it be. So Cyril is the only church father that we know that was eyeing the book of the, the Gospel of Thomas. And then he now said he doesn't want revelation. And his only issue with revelation also was that we are not sure whether John actually wrote it. That maybe someone wrote it as well and all that and all that. So that's why Cyril was not okay with revelation. However, in the Laodicean Synod, when all the bishops came together in 363, they affirmed all those books. They threw away Thomas and said, so this Thomas we don't know. The four that we have is good enough. It tells us all we need. This one that we don't know who wrote it and there's no point. Let's just pew. So they threw it out and then they affirmed the book of Revelation. And so since then, basically that's what has been accepted. Um, St. Athanasius in 367 affirmed um, all, all of the above, you know, just like Cyril of Jerusalem. And then he added revelation, right? Um, okay, the Laodicean Synod did not accept revelation yet. Athanasius accepted revelation with all the other ones. Of course, they threw away the book of the Gospel of Thomas. Greg, Gregory of Nazianus says same thing. Um, African canon, same thing. Jerome in 394, same thing. St. Augustine, same thing. The Carthage of Synod, they first met in 397. And when they met in 397, they wanted to do everything minus the book of revelation then they now came in 419 like 20 years after and said you know what let's leave the book of revelation back and so since then it has been the same all through do you understand that so that's how the new testament came to be and all the churches eastern orthodox catholic protestants all of us have the same new testament bibles there are some other books that are apographical just like the other ones i said and i told you the reason why the, the churches did not accept them, but there are also books that are useful that can give you context and um, insights into early Christianity and the way things were at the time. Um, praise God. So, um, I, can also, I, can, I can also give you a history of the debate on the book of Hebrews, which is the only interesting um, book that is accepted, but the authorship is in debate glaringly. Um, the book um, Eusebius. In the early um, fourth century, said, eh, I'm not sure, maybe it's Paul. Saint Jerome said, Yes, definitely. Cyril said, Yes, he believed so. Saint Augustine believed also that it was Hebrews. Athanasius believed it was Hebrew. The Synod of Laodicea believed it was Paul. Gregory 
from Nazianos also believed that it was Apostle Paul. Um, the African the African canons and the um, Synod of Carthage did not accept that it was Paul. So many of the church fathers believed that Paul wrote it. So that is it about the book of Hebrews. So basically, that is how the Bible came to be. So if you understand that track record, um, the New Testament was settled more or less by the early church fathers, and that's what we still have today. Um, the Old Testament scripture uh, is, is not really different from Protestants to Orthodox. It's not really different. It's just the books that we removed was a matter of practicality that happened in the 19th century, which many translations are actually going back to adding. You know, so, but the debate of whether those apocryphal books should be considered um, inspired or not, eh, is up for debate. You guys can debate it another, but I don't think we're missing anything from not having them. Praise God. Any questions? This is how the Bible came to be. It's pretty much it's boring, straightforward. Anybody have any questions, guys? Do you guys have any questions? Anybody has any questions? Praise God. All right, so I think we'll just close it here, since nobody has any questions. But you guys understand what I said very well. You understand how the Bible came to be? Do you have a new respect for how the Bible came to be? So the Bible is not just some book that some guys just cooked up. That's total nonsense. The story is deeper and less boring. It's less, it's, um, less interesting than the way pop culture portrays it to be. It's more grounded and less interesting. Hallelujah. You have a question? Okay. From the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. 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 Is it now over? Yes, it is. What is is this Zechariah the same Zechariah that was talked about in the Old Testament? Yes. It's the same Zechariah. Any questions? All right. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Let's give God thanks for new knowledge, for uh, depth, stronger revelation and understanding of our heritage as Christians. Father, I'll give you thanks. We we'll bless you. Thank you, Lord, because we walk in the confidence of what you've done in Jesus' name. Huh? All right, okay, sorry, let's take the question. Sorry, I apologize. We'll just take the question and close. How do we say that the states I don't understand the question. How is the compilation how does the compilation affect the credibility of the scriptures? I think we just went through it. Is there any part of the compilation that shows that it doesn't have authority? And what are the books we're talking about? I really don't understand the question. Can you read it again? Yes. How do we state the scriptures that the scriptures have more authority than other sources? I think the person still sounds like someone that is talking Dan Brown. Yes, I'm telling you. You always are talking like as if it's Dan Brown that is talking about. The compilation of the scripture is based on certain parameters. It is those parameters that made them gather together. So that is where the authority comes from. The authority comes from the criteria by which it was gathered. And that's what gives it authority over others. So it, that question would, uh, would be relevant if the criteria that were used applied to those other books but they were not added. Certain criteria were used for this. And that criteria is what makes this one more authoritative than the others. And we already talked about the criteria, the authorship and the content. So those, that criteria makes it more authoritative than the other books. Or are you talking about Old Testament versus New Testament? 
Could it be Old Testament versus New Testament that he's talking about? Maybe, maybe the question pertains to Old Testament books. If it's about the Old Testament books, um, like I said, um, the, the Hebrew Bible, which the Hebrews use, are uh, that which they can verify as part of their heritage, which they have a high level of confidence in. The apocryphal books that came in the post-exilic period when they were writing and all that, they did not really see it as relevant to their heritage. And that's what the Protestants also try to focus on. However, those apocryphal books are still in the Bible and they are still useful for knowledge and value. They have some value. And so they are still in the Bible, so to speak. So it's not as if they've even been thrown away, so to speak. So that idea that the apocryphal books were thrown away is actually a fallacy. They were not thrown away. They are actually part of the Protestant Bible, so to speak. So I hope, I hope that is clearer. Did he, is there a follow-up? Yes. No, we're going to follow what tradition and the church fathers teach, because even Jesus, even Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that the church, that this church that we're being built into a temple, is built on the foundation of Jesus, the prophets, and the apostles. Do you understand? So. The, the, the confidence that we have is based on the tradition that our fathers in Christianity taught us. So that in itself is the authority. And so we will follow what they say. We will follow what Paul says. We will follow what Peter says. And we will follow what they taught those that came after them say. So that's why. Good. Okay. Sam has caused problem. Yeah. Okay. Say it. I will it. Yeah, come and take your mic. So in John's gospel, when Jesus was talking to his disciples, he told them that there's many things I have to tell you, but it cannot be at them now. Good. That's when the spirit of truth comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, old. Yes, yes, I love that. And if we really study it from that chapter 14, 15, 16, we'll see that it wasn't... So he says that he will tell you, tell you of things to come. So he wasn't talking about me and you. That he will tell us of things to come outside the future. He was talking to his apostles yeah. that... Post resurrection, there'll be some things the will come, yeah, and it will show you the things to come, yeah. So, in those moments, it was literally dedicating the authority of, of the church to of them, the church yeah, to them. to them. And so, it makes sense that the church fathers were saying that it is what the apostles said thought, yeah, exactly. That we will, yeah, because Jesus himself said that, yeah, correct, this revelation is coming to you, yes, specifically. And then, yeah. Paul now said the same thing in first Corinthians 2, yeah, when he said that, um. What eyes have not seen and ears have heard, have not heard of that. There are things that have been revealed to us by the Spirit. Now, so I do that the things that we teach, yes, the Holy Ghost sends down from heaven. Exactly. That's what Apostle Paul was saying, my gospel, my gospel, my gospel, as I received something that was hidden before time, hidden before time began, which I have received. So it makes no sense that they will take maybe um, gospel of Thomas that they are not sure of, because from Jesus Christ himself, Jesus Christ himself had already said that it is these guys yeah. that I'm committing this to. Yeah. So if I'm not sh- if we're not even sure of those guys, then we, it makes no sense. There's no sense to even talk about to anything at talk all. Talk about them. Yeah. So if someone ran like you said, if someone comes that is not part of them and he writes a book, it makes no sense that the council will accept. So it's even God's wisdom that there are councils to accept or reject those books. Or else all of us will just be packing all the books yeah. and we'll re- forget that there are things that Jesus has said. Very good question. And that's what Sam wants to hear because I know that's where he's going. He wants to, he wants, he, he, there's a point he's making which is very important is that we need to affirm. We Protestants are fond of something. We say Bible alone. But that statement, Bible alone, does not really make meaning if you don't understand church history. Because even the Bible itself came to be by councils. Do you understand? So that means that there's a place for um, accepting tradition in understanding our Christianity. And so that's where he's going, that even the authority of the scriptures rests on the authority and the belief that we have in those councils. So if we don't believe in councils, we cannot claim to believe in the Bible. But this is where there's an issue if you follow that line of thoughts. Any, there's not anybody that can now gather and say they are council. 
that's my problem. And that's where we have to talk about it. You cannot just gather now. All of you gather somewhere in Rome and say, we are now the council. This is the Bible that wants you to be reading. I beg you should get that. You know, that kind of thing. So, that's where the discussion will be get more sophisticated. But obviously, it's not a discussion we'll have during service. It's one of our discussions that we'll be doing where we you know where we always meet. So, you still have a question. Okay. You can please give her the mic. Is he saying something else? Okay. Okay. So um, I'm I'm happy to clarify that. But this is the thing because we are Christians, we have a kind of mind where we appreciate, we understand, and I don't know maybe it's the spirit of God in us. Do you understand? We can, as we preach, it's almost like as if I could see everything. I could see what was happening. But this is it, and this is where non-Christians, we have an issue. And why he asked that question, and I, I suspect any other non-Christian will ask, will ask that question, is why would you, why would you just accept the books given to you by some group of people that gather? You know, in this Twitter age, we have a way, you can go to Twitter and talk to Elon Musk Kenya. But maybe a few years from now, they'll be talking about Elon Musk as one kind of God, I don't know. But you know, for, for us, we I think we are more curious, we are more, and we don't, especially a non-Christian, we wouldn't really see them as as important, as people that God actually gave the authority to. They would say that, that it will come like, that's, that, that's what will bring another kind of question. Why would you accept yeah. that this book yes. 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 uh, will choose Yes. 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 And so that's why if someone asks you that question, that's why you actually have to go into understanding the criteria and the mindset of those people. Do you understand? They have to understand. And there's a reason why successive councils were meeting and they were affirming more or less the same thing. Christians from the first century down to the Synod of Carthage were basically saying the same things. Basically affirming the same books. Whenever they had slight difference, there was always one book or one other book. And, and the reason why they had that issue, they will let you know. So the principles, the criteria, the spirits behind the affirmation of those books you know, this is another interesting angle. The, the spirit behind the affirmation of those books was not limited to that council. So that, the people in that council are not some elites that just came from heaven. They were members of the church that became pastors in the church and were sent to represent the church in the council. So when the councils were speaking, they were speaking on behalf of the church. That's why in the council of Nicaea, like 1,500 bishops were invited, but like only 320 or thereabouts showed up. Do you know why? Because many of the bishops all over the world said, you guys should go. You know how we believe. Whatever you say there, you are saying it on our behalf. So even those councils, don't even see those councils as some guys. Don't think of it like um, American Democratic Party and the Republican Party or Nigerian politicians who are disconnected from the people. These were the church, the leaders of the church, Going to the people, the leaders that went there were taught by people in the church. Do you understand? So their belief was that of the church. So the truth is that when we say there is no book that has a more democratic compilation than the Bible, that's one of the criteria was how widespread it was. That's one of the criteria for the choosing of the Bible. How widespread was were those books? There's no book that has a more democratic compilation because. All those books, at every point in time, but were read by everybody and were affirmed by everybody and were accepted by the majority of Christians at every point in time. There was never a time where a book was accepted by because one person said so and everybody was full. All the body of Christ all over Europe, West Mediterranean, North Africa at the time always accepted the same things. Yes, please go ahead. Sorry, before you start, and that is the reason why you will never see the Nigerian, you never see Bible books different in different places. You will not say, this is First Corinthians, the Ephesian version. This is the Egyptian version. This is the Constantinopolitan version. This is the Italian version. Because no, all of them were the same thing all over the world. Go ahead. Yeah, um, this is not the question, but it's also something to maybe help us look into. Um, concerning councils, I don't think that I, I don't know. I haven't read up on it. I don't think that councils just gather. Yeah. For gathering sake. Yeah. They are most likely responding to something. Yes. The example I have is Nicaea's council. Yeah. Out that they were responding to 
um, the RSC of areas. That's right. So they are saying that there's this RSC. What are we going to do about it? Exactly. 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 It's not like they just got that. Exactly. Let's start choosing. So exactly. Most likely, for example, you said there was a council that wasn't so sure about revelation. So it, it seems to me that they were responding to. So, that's right. Yes. So it's not like they just got that and said, oh, yeah. We don't like that is correct exactly that's absolutely correct that is a more accurate and so this is one of the problems with people nowadays anachronism will want to kill us reading history as if you are with american eyes you are looking at councils and you are thinking of the american senate of nancy pelosi and ted cruz that are elites that don't know anything about what is happening or you are thinking of the council of Trent, or you are thinking of the council of carthage and you are thinking of it as if it's the nigerian senate no, it's not like that. So those are the issues. Those are the anachronism. And Cheyenne's um, point is very makes very makes a lot of sense. Are there any other questions there? Praise God. All right, Father, we give you thanks. Thank you for a wonderful time. Thank you for edification. Thank you for depth of understanding. To you be all the glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. And uh, thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at This Excellent Church. God bless you.